Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed. Science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry experts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the reality of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your hosts, Dr. Mike McKinnon and Dr. Joseph Rodriguez. All right, everybody, thanks again for tuning into Anesthesia Deconstructed. I have a very special guest today. Simon Wilman, attorney at law, is a uh, graduate of Sandra Day O'Connor School of Law, at which point he became the in-house counsel. And Simon, you can correct me if I get any of this wrong, for one of the largest orthopedic uh, organizations in the South Southwest, Core Orthopedics, which then transitioned into Health Outcomes Performance Company, has some experience in investment banking as well. And after seven or so years of that experience broke off into his own practice. And that is how we ended up here today. Simon, thanks so much for being on. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure's all mine. Yeah. Did I get your did I get your intro right? I think it's it's good it's good enough. Yeah, absolutely. I uh lived in the world of orthopedics solely for about seven years and um we owned and and or managed, optimized medical practices, surgery centers, specialty hospitals, focused on alternative payer arrangements, value-based care, clinically integrated networks. Um, and then I stepped into a role to be home a little bit more as my wife went through some challenging health issues. And so that's why I set up my own firm and now have the pleasure of representing practitioners uh, in business transactions and general corporate matters. Well, that's uh, you've been uh, not the in-house, well, I guess de facto in-house counsel uh, for Arizona Anesthesia Solutions, uh, my home organization. And yeah, you've been a pleasure to work with. And uh, that's why I wanted to have you on. So a topic that comes up often in our circles, in anesthesia circles and CRNA circles, um, as we were talking about before, uh, to get prepped for the show, often in online forums, someone will come and say, hey, I have this restrictive covenant. I have this non-compete. What should I do about it? And of course, they go to the internet for advice, which is freely available. And you know, sometimes the uh, the the quality of the advice corresponds with the price, right? Which it's That's often right. free and not very good. But the common theme there is that you know these restrictive covenants are not enforced, right? In some, you know, that always comes up, like, oh, well, they're not enforced anyway, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of at a high level, do you mind sharing your insight? What's something you share with a general practitioner when they come to you and say, Simon, what do you think about restrictive covenants? What should I be aware of? Yeah, it's a sticky wicket for sure. And as you alluded to, the the internet is a bit of uh, get what you pay for type of resource. Every state has different rules, different laws, largely judge determined. We call that case law or common law, as opposed to statute or statutorily driven law. And depending upon the facts and the circumstances, the way the contract's drafted, how a judge is feeling on any given day, you may end up with a different result than someone even in a substantially similar circumstance within the same state, right? So 
you know, that that's kind of the overall or overarching disclaimer that the devil is in the details. And for your audience, there's probably three material buckets to consider from an enforceability standpoint. One is how they're classified from an employment standpoint. An employee versus an independent contractor are going to be viewed differently predominantly across the board in in any state by any judge, first and foremost. Secondly, whether you have any ownership in the practice or you receive any type of what I call synthetic ownership rights. So it may be a contractual profits interest. It could be um, the right to proceeds upon a liquidity event of the organization, et cetera. And then third, and I think this is probably most nuanced on a, on a state-by-state basis, but within the scope of your professional services, what type of ancillary services may be provided in addition to just the professional component. It's one thing if you're coming in and just performing CRNA services. It's another thing if you're being asked to manage a customer or to generate business, or you're involved in developing protocols or pathways, policies, procedures, standard operating policies. So you have to take the totality of the circumstances into consideration, as well as the way that the restrictive covenant is specifically drafted, because words do matter and states are different in whether they can blue pencil a provision. For example, if the restrictive covenant is slightly overbroad, Hmm. but it's not egregious, in a blue pencil state, a judge may have the ability to bring that restriction back into a reasonable level of conformity versus if it's not drafted reasonably, then it's just struck. Right. So the the blue pencil differentiation is essentially the judge has the ability to customize what the, what part of the restrictive covenant would actually apply. Correct. Yes. And you'll see that. Um, drafted in, in a variety of ways, but the most prevalent is what's called a step-down provision. Mm-hmm. So if you see a restrictive covenant that says, you know, you can't compete within 10 miles of a facility or for a duration of five years, and then the 10 miles says, if this isn't enforceable, it's nine. If nine is unenforceable, it's eight, and did it all the way down to one. Similarly, five-year term, If five years is found to be unenforceable, then it'll be four, three, two, one, right? right? And those step-down provisions are a way to try to um, comply with this blue pencil concept to give the judge the opportunity to say, well, I thought 10 miles or five years was too long, so I'm going to scale it down. And the parties contemplated that that may happen. Flip side of that coin is we say, hey, look, it's not enforceable. They knew it wasn't enforceable. That's why they included these step down provisions. So, you know, lawyers are going to argue 
both sides of that coin and it'll be up to the judge to determine. Yeah. And this is so the first thought I have after hearing all that is, number one, uh, you are the expert on these things. I am not. Right. I Like I wrote a 600 word essay basically on this and I was like, oh, it seems like I know something. And now that I'm listening to you. I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's there's much more even that I was just thinking yesterday. Um, I want to go back to what you originally first said. I just want to make sure I have it right. So there's state law, state statute, case as far as factors, right? State law, common law or case law. There's the individual facts and circumstances of the case and then the judge. And, you know, if I was looking at this from like a scientific point of view, those are four independent variables that are going to weigh in on a specific case. And the final thing you... If I heard you correctly, even if all those are relatively similar, you might end up with a different outcome. You know, I think you said despite having essentially everything the same, you might end up with a different outcome than someone else. Did I characterize that appropriately? I think that's very well articulated. There, there's no doubt. And I've experienced it firsthand, as a matter of fact, in uh, transactions where providers received payouts. And uh, they were in different counties within the same state. And one judge said, this is unenforceable. And another judge said, this is absolutely enforceable. Plus the attorney's fees because we had to go enforce that. So um, that is the difficulty of trying to handicap litigation. And I'm a transaction guy. So I work with litigators, right? I help the litigators with their arguments and presenting uh, facts and building a case um, to either enforce or to try and rebut a restrictive covenant, depending upon my client. But at the end of the day, the best litigators, they'll tell you, even if you think this is a slam dunk case, Mm. you're highest likelihood of success is probably 80%. And if you think you're it's a complete bum, this case has got no legs, you still got a 20% chance that we that you can get a judge to agree to it. So that's why I say it's, you know, devils in the details and how and how it's how the non-compete or the other restrictive covenants are obviously more than just non-competes, but typically a non-compete, how it's drafted uh, and what the intent of the parties were at the time of entering into the agreement and the totality of the circumstances as it relates to the relationship. Okay. So just some, uh, I, I wrote down the three main areas of concern as well, but if I'm, you know, Joe, well, I am Joe, but if I was Joe Schmo <laughs> CRNA, instead of a super unique name like Rodriguez, um, if I'm Joe Schmo CRNA and uh, I come to you and say, Hey man, I feel like this, restrictive covenant is, you know, I, I signed this contract a years ago, but I feel like it's really burdensome. You know, these are all the things that all, like these four independent variables that we've spoken about, plus the three other things, you know, that's essentially the gauntlet of decision making, right? I mean, in terms of what a reasonable person should expect to try to handle. Do, do I have it right? Yeah, I think that's right. And to even make it more arduous, the, the state of the law is always changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not rapid fire change, but a case will come down in, in a jurisdiction, 
right? I, I happen to be licensed in Arizona. So your case comes down in Arizona, for example, and that changes the way healthcare provider restrictive covenants have to be drafted. And so you may have entered into an agreement, right? Could have been days, weeks, months, years, most likely. And now it's it, the game's changed, mm-hmm. maybe for your benefit, but maybe not, right? And so I don't want to put the cart before the horse, Joe, and get ahead of your questions because just in case your audience are wondering, I, I have no idea. <laughs> Where we're, where we're going, Joe, Joe's not lobbing any softballs. This, no, this is scripted. We, uh, you know, we want to be we want to be very thoughtful. And and I, and I, candidly, I don't know your audience well enough to know how many of them are owners versus employees versus independent contractors. But from an ownership perspective, there's value in the dissuasive effect of a restrictive covenant. Because even if it's not enforceable, perhaps as long as it's not egregious, there will be a subset of employees or contractors that do not have either the financial or the emotional wherewithal to pressure test the enforceability of it. Right. And so if if that, if that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Please, please continue. Yeah. I was just going to say if that's and if that's 80% or thereabouts, that's probably a fairly significant win for an employer because they know that they're only going to have to pressure test, you know, maybe one out of five, maybe at worst, right? And that and costs associated with that, right? If you want to test it, you're going to have to pony up essentially. Absolutely. Um Typically, the the pathway in fighting a restrictive covenant involves hiring a lawyer and going back and forth on a pre-litigation demand, you know, cease and desist, letters, phone calls, arguments. Then you have motions for injunctive relief. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll typically find in in these arrangements that there's a provision in the restrictive covenant section that says the damage to the employer resulting from a breach of these restrictive covenants Mm -hmm. is hard to immediately quantify, Mm. but it immediately is detrimental. And therefore we're entitled to injunctive relief. An injunctive relief basically means you go in front of a judge and the judge does one of two things. The judge says, I'm going to enter into basically a temporary restraining order, which says, hey, you violated the terms of this agreement. You are prohibited from performing services in violation of the restrictive covenant. Now, for a whole host of reasons, and we can talk about that 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 later, but that's probably not what would happen. Most likely, what would happen is that a judge would say, I am not going to force specific performance, which is 
you have to continue providing services to the organization that you left, or I'm going to require you to stop performing services at this competing organization because healthcare services are very important to the community. And we, we can talk about that when we talk about some factors that, that are taken into consideration about whether these are enforceable and how they should be structured to be reasonably tailored. But, but that specific performance is highly unlikely to be required. Instead, a judge is going to go down that second pathway and say, I think that there's been a breach here and I would like the organization to submit damages, some evidence of damages. And therefore, we will put some type of numerical value on this breach. And by going through that injunctive pathway, we have somewhat circumvented going through a more traditional litigation, which ironically, we then kind of enter into when we start arguing about damages. On On the other side of that coin, instead of going for that injunctive relief, you have breach of contract claims. And so you move towards a more formal litigation and you say, there's a breach of contract. There are damages. I'm entitled to my damages. And then of course, lawyers always are going to make every argument we can. We say, furthermore, if there's not an equitable remedy under breach of contract, we should be entitled to restitution under, you know, the theory of equity, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't fair that you know, we made a deal and they had their fingers crossed behind their back and therefore it invalidates what we put on paper. There should be some type of justice, some type of equity. And judge, we're asking you to award us what you think is reasonable. Gotcha. Okay. You know, it's another, what I heard there was, you know, these are, these are torts, correct? So it's in civil law, there's damages that must be proved. Did I hear that correctly? Yep, this is civil litigation. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Right. And then also that the, the health of the community plays a role as well. Uh, one of the themes I'm picking up here is that there's a, there's a there's a ton of factors to be considered when this stuff actually goes down, part A and part B. If you want to get in get into these factors, it costs money, right? Yeah. I want to make sure I summarize those three main uh, purposes. We got about uh, two and a half minutes left. So because uh, as Simon knows, I, I don't like uh, uh, I'm a short podcast guy. Unlike our other hosts, he's the long podcast guy. He, I'm Guy Rizdahl. He's Joe Rogan. Right. OK, so things that weigh into uh, the enforceability, I'll use that word, the classification of the individual. Right. Whether they're a W2 employee and they're con- you know much more controllable versus a 1099 contractor, whether they have ownership and to what degree. Uh, whether they provide ancillary services, i.e. policy creation, leadership services, management services, et cetera. So what I'm picking up there is if you're a W-2 employee and you have ownership in the practice and you're providing ancillary services, it's going to be easier to prove damages uh, if you break a restrictive covenant. Is that a reasonable conclusion? I think that's that, that that's more certainly more likely than than vice versa. If you were to flip those three categories right. around it, at the end of the day, restrictive covenants are put in place to pre- protect a legitimate business interest. Mm-hmm. And if the facts around the situation 
substantiate that this restriction was put in place because there was valuable proprietary customer management. Um, uh, that is certainly a more protectable or important business interest than just a gun for hire who's, you know, at an office or in an operating room who doesn't have any of the insider information or secret sauce or have any influence over profitability or loss accountability, you know? Gotcha. But, but at the end of the day, our prior, I know we're short on time, the prior, you know, comments about litigation, right? I think you've got to be prepared to spend a hundred thousand dollars before you really even get to trial. If you get to trial, many of these are, either settled on a pre-litigation basis, settled early in litigation, or a judge will award summary judgment for one party. Um, And then, of course, you always have the risk of running an appeal, whether you want to run the appeal because you lost or the other party choosing to appeal because they lost. That's a that's a uh, powerful statement because it's a big number and most individuals don't want to shell out that kind of money. My advice to these folks, you know, in this post that I made just recently was basically, look, if you if you don't want to sign something you're not comfortable with, don't sign it and go work somewhere else. Would you think is that and we'll we'll leave it here with the last comment. Is that good advice? What advice would you give to somebody who has a lot of, you know, they're looking at a their first contract and they see this one page restrictive covenant? What's your advice to somebody like that? I, I I like your advice, and I'll I'll put it this way: when when we negotiate contracts up front before we actually engage in in providing services, it's it's like a it's like a marriage, right? We're getting into a business relationship, and we're signing a prenuptial agreement, and if that prenuptial agreement is overhanded. It's just painful to negotiate. There's not a lot of reasonableness on the front end of this relationship before you've made your 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 vows, right? That is nine out of ten times indicative of what the future of that relationship is going to hold. Because that's the honeymoon phase, mm. right? To make this all into a marriage analogy. And if that if that honeymoon phase is imminently painful, the chances of it getting better are extremely unlikely. So to your point, I'd watch out. And if it's and and, and if and if there's not a level of reasonableness on the front side, I would consider whether you really want to enter into that that relationship. That's great. That's great advice, Simon. Thank you so much. It, everybody, if you want to interact more with Simon, his website is mcdowmountainlaw.com. If uh, you've liked what you've heard and you have questions, uh, you can, if you have questions for Simon, you can email him directly. If questions generally, uh, you can email me at joe at azas.team. And uh, hopefully we got it. Hopefully I didn't treat you too partially, Simon, and you'll be willing to come back on sometime in the future and continue to add insights. This was this was really cool, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, Joe. Always enjoy getting to sit down and chat with you. 
That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussions, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 